good morning. And welcome again to Creekside Church. It's kind of a busy time of year, isn't it? We're kind of getting off of the summer schedule and getting into our fall schedule with school and college and everything that we do in the fall. And here at church, we're getting busy too. We've got fall ministries coming up. And so you've seen signups out there for a couple of weeks for small groups. And so we'd encourage you uh, to sign up for a small group. And if we need to create another one, we will. Uh, because we believe that's important to have that level of fellowship on a regular basis and uh, some discipleship teaching and prayer. And it's a time for care and concern, too, just we can get together with other believers like that and, and care for each other's needs. Um, and then also we have Awana coming up for our children's weekly ministry on uh, Wednesday nights. We have Awana for the little uh, two-year-olds up through fifth grade. And then we have junior high and high school ministries. So be in prayer for that and be ready for that. We're, we're starting right up uh, next week with Awana, next week on the Wednesday night. And we're going to do it a little bit earlier this year because uh, we want to make it more accessible to more families and get the kids home a little bit earlier. So we're going to start at 6.15 instead of 6.25 and end at 7.45 instead of 8 o'clock. And so um, to help parents get the kids there that early after work, we also are offering again this year uh, dinner beforehand at 5.30. So it's just a free will offering dinner so that's provided so come at 5 30 for that and then registration is 6 to 6 15 and then we start at 6 15. now this week on wednesday night at seven o'clock we're going to have a leaders meeting so if you're at all interested uh, in helping with awana come this wednesday night and we're going to do it from seven to eight just an hour and it's something we do every year to help cast the vision for awana and uh, put out the schedule so we all know what we're doing each week so uh, talk to me or talk to my mom if you're at all interested in that or talk to Jeff Westfall. We've got a table out in the back there. And so if you've got kids that you're going to send to Awana, um, we have them all register on the first night. But you can do that ahead of time. So we've got a table back there you can register your kids for. And I just want to say that uh, be in prayer for these ministries this fall. We've, we've got a lot planned and a lot going on, a lot we're excited about. Um, but pray for it because we need God's help. We need his blessing on our ministries here. And just think of these young children, uh, how impressionable they are. These are their formative years of growing and knowing, maybe for the first time, who their creator is and who their savior is. And so just pray for souls to be saved this year. Pray for kids to grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, that God would use that. And I know he has used it. And I, I was just kind of excited to think back maybe four or five years ago when the couples were here for a couple months and, and seeing Caleb again who... You know, it's about four or five years ago that after an Awana lesson, uh, prayed prayed with me to receive the Christ as his Savior, and and it was just exciting, you know. And he's, I think, still following the Lord, right? <laughs> and we'll keep checking in with you on that. Uh, so, anyways, it's it's a real blessing to be a part of this ministry and in the kids' lives. So, I'm just going to commit it to prayer, and then I think we have a, a video after that. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the saints gathered here to, this morning. Uh, appearing before our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that great salvation you've given to us through his body, through his life, his death and sacrifice on the cross for our sins, his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we just thank you for a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it is that message of a risen Savior, the hope of salvation through him, that we want to proclaim through our ministries this year, that we want to proclaim to our kids in Awana and Sunday school, to the junior high kids and high schools kids and in college and, and adults, Lord. We just pray that you would open up opportunities for us that maybe we don't even see yet. Open doors for us to share the gospel as Paul prayed. 
And we pray that you would bless our ministries, that it wouldn't just be a time of busyness for the sake of church activity and busyness, but, Lord, that your hand would be in it, that your hand would, of blessing would be upon us as we do Awana and Sunday school and small groups and, and everything we do here. Lord, may you be with us and go before us and bless it all uh, for your glory, uh, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis uh, 19. We are uh, starting a new series next week uh, called Family Ties, and it's going to be a four-week series. We're extremely excited about it. It's going to kind of coincide with our small groups as well. So we would encourage you, one, make sure you're here for those messages, but two, if you've not signed up and you've not plugged into a small group, we'd strongly encourage you to do that. So uh, Alan, I think, will be outside right afterwards, and and we really want to get you plugged into that. So with the new series starting next week, I guess that would mean we are ending our series in Genesis today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I I love going and spending that much time in a long section like that. Uh, Now, when we look at Genesis 19, it's probably not the the ending that you'd probably expect, uh, where to wrap it up. I don't think when we first started, we looked at this and said, you know what, let's wrap it up with God judging, some incest, you know, let's throw it all together. That sounds like a good ending message. Uh, not, not, not really, but uh, that, that's where we're going to be this morning. So you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 19. I'm going to read it for you. You can follow along. We're going to do the first half. It says, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men. For they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in this city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. Because we, are, because we are going to destroy the place, the outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, sons-in-law who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, hurry, take your wife and your daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. 
When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, he said to him, very well, I will grant you this request. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. And then the Lord rained down, burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus, he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt." Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that your word would speak to us this morning. God, that you would challenge us as we look at this passage and see how we can live differently, how we can live set apart. God, how we can, can look to you. We can look to your son, the righteous one. So God, uh, as, as we look to dive into to Genesis 19 today, God, speak to our hearts, our minds, challenge, convict, do what you might. We pray it and we ask it in, the Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Nick started us off last week in Genesis 18. We looked at the story. God has come, and Abraham and him are having a conversation, and they're talking about the impending doom coming to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And as they're talking about it, you you remember now that Abraham goes before God. He begins to plead. He begins to plead with God. Abraham begins to plead with God, "Won't, won't you spare if we can find 50 righteous If we can find 45 righteous, if we can find 40, 30, 20, 10, and down the list he goes, asking God to spare the city if they could find just enough righteous people. And reading that, it always always strikes me funny. Even as Nick was reading it last week, uh, I literally was chuckling out loud because you you read it and it's just... It's just a weird kind of kind of interaction between the two. And selling real estate kind of reminds, reminds me of my real estate dealings a lot of time. I, I had one recently where the house was listed at 470, and we came in low at 420. And then we haggled back and forth. It was 460, 430, 450, 440. We finally arrived at it. And that, that's the picture I kind of got as we were going back and forth. All right, let me try this out. No, okay, let's go back here. It's kind of almost that Abraham is doing this negotiation with God. And so we know, as Nick was going through it, great story in Genesis 18, great portion of Scripture, but Abraham pleading to God. And now in Genesis 19, we see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of the cities of the plain unfold before us. And so as I was reading through this passage, it was was very difficult for me. You know, I like to just kind of tell the story and go through it, but, but as I was reading it, what I wanted to do this week is just kind of look at the different people within the story. 
And I think looking at the different people within the story, I think there's a lot to learn from each and every one of them for us. And so I want to do that. The first group I want to look at is I just want to look at the, the people of Sodom. And if you look at the people of Sodom, and, and you're probably familiar with this story, and you're familiar with this story for many reasons. You know, one, the word sodomy comes straight from the story here of Sodom. But as you read throughout Scripture, these cities are mentioned. Their sin, their detestable sin, the things that they were doing are mentioned throughout the Bible. I'm just going to rattle off some of the places it's mentioned in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 16, Amos 4, Zephaniah 2, Matthew 10, Luke 10, Matthew 11, Luke 17, Romans 9, 2 Peter 2, Jude, uh, Jude 1, Revelation. All the way throughout Scripture, this story of what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah is talked about. And it's talked about as a warning, isn't it? There's not a, a whole lot of uh, good connotation that comes with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can start all the way back in Genesis, read the story about it, and they're still talking about it in Revelation. Right? And so we see that, and we see what is taking place and the sin that's taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's more than just the sin that's taking place. If you would read, and when, when Abraham goes before God and God is talking to him, he says the words, I have heard the outcry. I have heard the outcry from the people. And we see it again, right, in, in Genesis chapter 19. He says, we've heard the outcry. Uh, in verse 13, the outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Uh, Robert Alter, in his commentary on Genesis, says this. He says, the word for outcry is the word used throughout the Bible for the outcry of the oppressed. That this is the outcry of the people who are being persecuted. This is an outcry of the people who are experiencing violence. This is the outcry of people who are being oppressed. And God has heard their cry for help. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the city of the plains, although their sin was detestable, we read about it throughout Scripture, it was their, the, the, how they treated those in need, how they treated the oppressed, how they treated those. And it's evident, right, of visitors walk into town and you see what they want to do to them. But he hears, God hears the outcry of the oppressed. And this fits perfectly. If you look at Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 16, it's talking about Sodom. And here's what it says. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant overfed and unconcerned they did not help the poor and needy they were haughty and they did detestable things before me then I did away with them as you have seen you see that right they didn't help the poor they didn't help the needy they took advantage of them they destroyed them the outcry was great against the oppressed people and so as we see this, we ask ourselves, and, and, and with all of the people that we look at in this story, we ask ourselves, you know, what does that mean to me? You know, for me, this isn't a story of, man, I better not act like that, or God's going to throw down some fire and brimstone on me. That, that's, that's not the point for us, right? But the point for us is there is a way in which the, the, the world was living, Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of the plains, and even a way in which a lot of the world lives today. 
where people who are oppressed, people uh, experience the violence, they experience all of this in their lives. There's that side. On the other side is where we, as followers of Christ, we who pursue the kingdom of God should live our lives. Those who are oppressed, those where there's an outcry, God's people should stand up for that. If you're familiar, a famous verse within Scripture, Micah 6.8 says this. He says, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let me read it again. He has shown you, O man, what is good And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want of his people, of his followers, of those who pursue the kingdom of God? Here's what he wants. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What should we as people of God be doing? We should be helping the oppressed. We should be hearing the cries of the oppressed and answering it. I don't know if you're like me, but reading through the news this week was tough. And I remember, I I can't remember exactly what day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day it was, and seeing that image of that little boy from Syria. Was that not heartbreaking? And you see all that's going and and taking place over there, and here they're trying to to flee from this oppression and this violence that they're experiencing. And washed up on the shore is this little two-year-old boy looking like he's sleeping. And and if, if that didn't move you, if that didn't break your heart, then something's wrong. And these type of things all over the world are taking place. Where people are oppressed, people are experiencing violence. And for us, we, we see how a city and a people group of Sodom treated those type of people. But for the people of God, Micah 6.8 tells us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. We as followers of Christ, we as as people who pursue the kingdom of God, we want to hear the outcry and we want to respond. And whether that's locally or globally, whatever it might be, may our hearts be moved, to be moved to help those in need. That's the calling of God's people. And so as I look at the people of Sodom, they give us a great example of very ungodly People who did not repent. There is no repentant people that we see in Sodom. They're destroyed. And on the other side of it, we look to how should we respond as people of God? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. Next person I want to look at is Lot. Now, we look at Lot, and I don't know if you look at Lot. For me, I look at him, and I read stories here and some other stories about Lot. Man, this guy looks like a little weasel to me. You look at him, and you're like, man, this guy, I just, I don't know. He just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Yet, for, for Lot, and you remember Abraham, he's going, and he's pleading with God, God, is there, is there ten righteous in this city? And I'm sure somewhere in Abraham's mind, he's kind of thinking about Lot. But even Lot is only relatively righteous, right? You can, you can go to 2 Peter, and you can see in 2 Peter, three times in chapter 2, Peter calls Lot righteous. Now, if you read through this portion of Scripture and what I just read and what you see about Lot, it's, it seems difficult to call Lot righteous, right? I mean, he's ready to give up his daughters, right? In the end of the chapter, there's some incest that takes place with Lot. I, I, it just 
just doesn't seem that way. But it wasn't his actions the reason that Lot was righteous, was it? He was righteous because of his faith. And, and I'm reminded as I look throughout stories in Scripture and you see guys like Noah and you see guys like Abraham and you see guys even like David, a man after God's own heart, who all had flaws. They all made mistakes. But because of their faith, they were righteous. And so we, we see Lot here, and Lot relatively righteous, but not by his own actions. But even comparing Lot to these other guys, it just seems like there's a whole lot less character and commitment from Lot. And, and we see it in the story. Uh, you'll remember Lot uh, when he is with Abraham, and they're kind of breaking. They're going to go their certain ways. And Lot wanted to come down to Sodom. He wanted to come down where the, the, the fields and the, the, they were all fertile. He wanted to bring all his livestock down there. And I think for Lot, Lot is, I think, a good picture of what many Christians in our world are like today. You know, we know Lot was a Christian. We know, we know Lot, uh, you know, righteous. We see it right there in 2 Peter. But for Lot, it, it seems on one, one side, Lot, Lot has kind of his foot into the world. And then he's got part of him wanting to pursue the things of God. And if that isn't the church in many places in America today, I don't know what it is. But here, Lot kind of gives us that picture. In one hand, you know, here's the kind of the, the glitz and the glamour of Sodom, right? And he's, he's drawn to it. He wants it. And on the other hand, okay, the things of God, pursuing the kingdom of God. And there's almost this pull within Lot that we see. And so we see it initially when he kind of breaks off, and we see it even here. That he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to leave, and he kind of has to be pulled by these guys. And we see it. Now in, in chapter, uh, in verse 6 here rather, we, we almost see that, that Lot has a, he's a, almost a glimmer of hope here. here. Read it again. Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Oh yeah, way to go, Lot. You, you the man, Lot, Get, let's do this. And then what happens in the very next verse? In verse 8, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you want with them. Right? Here's the pull. Lot seemingly wants to do what's right. And if you read through the Old Testament scripture, there's a high calling for hospitality. Hospitality, you're to take care of at any cost those that are staying in your home. Yet, it's almost like he puts this calling of hospitality ahead of the sanctity of his family. And I couldn't imagine the outcome if these guys actually went and said, okay, that we're fine with that. Fortunately, in this story, they are not fine with it, and they continue to press, they continue to go. The, uh, the mob continue to push and pressure Lot. Peter, as well, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, he, he tells us that Lot was tormented. It says right in there, Lot was tormented day after day. Here's, here's what's going on a lot, right? He's got one foot in the world, and he's got one foot wanting to pursue the kingdom of God. And you can see why he was tormented. It was tormented over the sin that he was around, because Lot had given himself. He's part of now the city and what's going on in Sodom, yet he, he, he wanted to pursue God, and that's the dilemma. And I think so many people and so many Christians, I think in America today and all over the world probably, feel this same dilemma. One, one, one side of us there's the glitz and the glamour of Sodom. There's the glitz and the glamour of this world, and we're drawn to it. We want to pursue it. We need it. We want it. We think we need it. And yet, there's part of us, my God, I want to pursue you. I want to come after your kingdom. 
I want to come after Jesus. I want to be like him. And we feel that. We feel that tension. And I thought, I think Lot felt that tension as well. A great verse, Psalm 86, 11. This is the psalmist. This is David speaking. And he says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart. I think lots struggle with that. I think many of us, if you're like, I struggle with this. That undivided heart, God, I want to pursue you with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. But the draw and the attraction of this world is great, isn't it? And we find ourselves like Lot so many times with that conflict going on in us. Even as he's leaving, here Lot is running for the mountains. They saved him, right? They're saving his life. Lot taking off running here. He said, oh, oh, I don't want to run to the mountains. You know, surely it's over going to come. I'm going to die. How about this little town? Zohar, how about you just let me stay here? What did he want? Even in that moment, even after God had shown mercy on him, he still wanted a little piece of it. Here's all that had gone on in the plains, the city of the plains. And he says, you know, this small little town, it's not quite Sodom, but why don't you just let me keep a little piece of it? That's what he wanted. And we find this, and we probably struggle with the same things. Yet God shows Lot mercy, and he shows him grace. There is quite a, quite a bit to learn about Lot. The next group of people I want to point us to is it's Lot's family. And the first ones are his daughters. There's not a whole lot said about his daughters up to this point. Uh, we see it later in chapter 19, they go, or second half of chapter 19, they go and get Lot drunk, they sleep with him, and some incest takes place. They don't seem like high-quality girls to me, I don't, I don't know, just, just my impression. But I also think that's probably even a reflection on Lot. And as we look at Lot, Lot's son-in-laws, and Lot's wife, I think they probably all maybe reflect on Lot. I, I think as parents... We need to be people who are a living example of what it is to pursue the kingdom of God. We're, we're told, tra- train your child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. We want to set an example for our family. And I think here, I, I think it's a reflection of the type of life that Lot was probably living. One foot in, and one foot out. And his family is almost reflected. And so we see this as daughters. We see it from his son-in-laws as well. You'll see the story of his son-in-laws. Now, if you read in here, it said all the men of the city, both young and old, were at his door. Well, guess who was there? His son-in-laws were there at the door with the rest of the men in the city. It said all, every man, young and old, were at his doors. And again, we see this. The son-in-law's there, and so he, he tells him, he comes to him after the, 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 the angels tell him to flee. And he says, all right, why don't you guys come with me? What is their response? They think he's joking. Now, this is either because they have little respect for Lot and the kind of example in the life that he's living, or like many people in the world today, they may take the judgment of God as a joke. I think if you would ask the majority of the world, they don't believe in the judgment of God. They don't believe that God is going to judge. I think many people, right, they want the, they want the merciful, merciful God. You know, I believe in a God of mercy. But the problem is you, you can't have a merciful God if you don't have a God that judges, 
right? If you don't hear, have a God who hears the outcry of the oppressed and doesn't do something about it. And so these, probably like many people in the world today, they just don't take the judgment of God serious. The last person of Lot's family that we see is his wife. Again, not a lot that we know about her. I'm guessing that, and what many commentaries, uh, commentators think, is he probably married a woman from Sodom. So she probably has di- di- uh, deep roots and ties to the city of Sodom and the area, and probably living that lifestyle, as Lot was on one hand. And so this, as you read here, it tells us in verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I always read this, and as I was reading it, I always pictured that she's trying to keep up with Lot. Huh, slow down, honey, I want to catch you, you know, and trying to do this whole thing, and then she happens to glance back, and boom, she's a pillar of salt. But as you read and you hear Jesus talk about Lot's wife, I think it's a little different. Look what, what Jesus says about it, Luke 17, 31 through 33. Jesus speaking, he says this, Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Jesus talking about, don't go back to your former life. The way in which you live, don't go back to those things. Don't go back to your former life. Uh, Don't go back for anything. Then he goes on to say, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so I think we get a picture of what really took place. This picture of, of Lot's wife, right, following Lot, follow me, but yet there's the draw of Sodom. The life that she knew, the life she was familiar with, the life that she loved. And she turned and went back to it. And and this is a lesson for us. And there's some great truths for us. As Jesus speaking in Luke 17, he says, Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to lose his life, keep his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Don't go back to how we used to live. Don't go back to the things that you used to do. The glitz and the glamour of Sodom and of this world are there. But turn from it. That's what Jesus tells us. Man, lose your life and you will find it. This is what Jesus is calling us to. The last thing and the last character I want to share in in a little more in depth uh, is Abraham. And we see here Abraham, in verse 27, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So remember, Genesis 18, Nick shared with us last week, Abraham goes before God and begins this, and it's a great picture of prayer that we see in Genesis 18. Now, uh, looking at Genesis 18, it's also a great picture of Abraham and being a priest. So I heard Alan sent me some, some great information uh, this week talking about Genesis 18 and leading in to Genesis 19. And you see this picture of Abraham, although not the first priest, the one who's really acting priestly, performing priestly duties for the first time. And so what is Abraham doing in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham is coming before God as the priest. He is speaking on behalf of of a people group. 
And so we see this picture. Abraham is invited to come before God. And in verse 25 of chapter 18, it says, we see Abraham. It says, Abraham approached God. In verse 27, it says, early, uh, 1927, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord. Now, what had happened is, Abraham, going before God, he's already before God, and now it says he approaches God. And so it's a legal term, and you got to think about it kind of like in a courtroom setting, that if you're a defense attorney, you're in the room with the judge, right? But then there's a time when you're going to probably approach the bench. And this is what's taking place. When it says he approaches God, Abraham is now coming before God. And Abraham now is going to speak as a priest on behalf of the people. And so God has invited him to do that. Now in verse 20, 24, we see that God going before him begins to plead with him. Now I want us to think, just like a, a defense attorney coming before God, is that he's going to start with what? He's going to start with the law that he knows. Now, if you are a defense attorney, the first thing you do is, I've got my, my defendant over here. I don't go in and I don't try to convince the judge to change the law, do I? I don't go in and I say, you know, here's what took place. I really think this isn't a good law. So I think you should throw out what you're trying to bring against him. No, what do you do? You start with a basis for the law. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Abraham starts, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He recognizes who God is. You are the judge of all the earth. And he starts with that basis, with that premise, that he is the judge. He, he is the law over all the earth. And what I love about it, and uh, what, what Tim Keller was talking about in this, is that, that now Abraham, as he's coming before God, is going on this theological journey exploration with God. And so he comes before God and they have this incredible conversation that, that, that uh, Nick took us through last week. And he comes before God and he says, won't you spare? If we can find 50 righteous, won't you spare Sodom and Gomorrah and the city of the plains? And this, the Hebrew word for spare there is to forgive. So what Abraham is coming to him and saying, God, won't you forgive? Won't you forgive these people? If we can find 50, if we can find 45, if we can find 40, if we can find 30, if we can find 20, if we can find 10, won't you forgive these people? And I, I love that picture. And as if you look at people who come before God, any other time you see it, people are coming before God for their own people. But what Abraham does here is he's coming before God for people who have, he's had to fight off. He, they have attacked him. The Canaanites have come after him. And yet here is Abraham as a priest coming before the Almighty God and asking if we can find even ten righteous, won't you spare them? Uh, in this, you see that, uh, in, as the Bible speaks, we, we in, in America live in a very individualistic culture, and, you know, I, I'm responsible only for myself. And if you look at many of the cultures around the world, and you look at biblical times and cultures throughout the history of the world, 
they look at more on a whole. That basically, if my people group or my race or my family or whatever it might be, that there's some accountability and responsibility for action. And you see that in the scripture, and the Bible talks about it as well. And Abraham, Abraham understood this. And so as, as Abraham is speaking to God and he's going on this, this spiritual exploration, this theological exploration with God, he recognizes this. And so as you begin to see it, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, what is Abraham asking? God, I know that my sins and the sins of my people can fall on me. But here's the question for you. Can the righteousness of people also fall on me? Even the righteousness of ten. Can the righteousness of ten overcome the unrighteous that are many? Can it overcome it? And what Abraham discovers is what? What, is, what does God say to him? If there are 50 righteous, will he spare the city? Yeah. 45, yes. 40, yes. 30, yes. 20, yes. 10, yes. I will spare the city. And it's so cool to look and see, yes, God. God and his desire to save is greater than his desire to punish. He wants to see people saved. And here he is, yeah, you find it. But what's so strange about the story is, why does Abraham stop at 10? For 10 will you spare the city? I mean, where should this end? Wouldn't you think that Abraham would go all the way down to, God, if there is one, if there is one who is righteous, would you spare the city? And I think Abraham in this journey, discovers that, you know what? God, at one, would spare the city. He knew Lot was there. He knew Lot was down there. But even Lot was only relatively righteous. God would spare the city if Abraham had asked the question, God, will you spare the city for one? God's response, yeah. If you've got the right one. Abraham, as he goes on this journey, and for us to realize this truth as well, God would, for the right one, the right one would give it up. And that's what he's done, hasn't he? In his son Jesus, the right one, the righteous, has died for the unrighteous. Abraham discovers, as the high priest, he discovers there is a greater high priest who will go before God. That's Jesus. For the right one. What a truth. John 17, and we, we get this picture of Jesus, because Jesus executed this principle to a T. In John 17, it says, Father, Jesus speaking, Father, love them as you have loved me. Treat them as you would treat me. For their sake, I sanctify myself. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. He 
He for us, one righteous, for the many unrighteous. What a thing. What a truth. As the band comes back up and we remember Jesus and what he has done in the bread and the juice, this is the message of the gospel. Abraham discovered it. We need to discover it. When you accept the gospel of Jesus, you enter into a solidarity with him. What do I mean? That his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And now when God looks at me, he no longer sees, and, and you know, there's no one who is good. What does he see? He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my failures, my faults. When he looks at me, because I am with Jesus, because I've made this, this decision to follow and pursue Jesus, believe in him, accept him as my Savior. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my failures, my faults. He sees Jesus. He sees righteous, not because of my actions, but because of Jesus' actions for me. The righteous for the unrighteous. We need to discover this if, if we've not already discovered it. In and of ourselves, we are utterly flawed before God. But in Jesus Christ, we are utterly righteous before God. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, goes before God for us. What, a, what an awesome thing. The righteous for the unrighteous. As we take the bread and the juice this morning, remember this. Remember what Jesus has done for us. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these, these people that we see, these characters we see in Genesis chapter 19. Remind us that these aren't, this isn't a fable. This isn't some story out of the library that we pick up. God, this, these are real people. And through their lives and their situation, God, there is a ton for us to learn. God, as we look at people like Lot, help us not to have one foot in and one foot out. One foot pursuing you and one foot after the ways of the world. Help us not to have that, that, that divided heart. God, as, as we look at Lot's wife, help us not to be like her and turn back to the things of the world when you've called us out of the world and called us to a new life. Help us not turn to back to it. God, as we look at Abraham, God, help us to realize the truths found in here. God, going before you, ultimately pointing us to Jesus who went before you, pointing us to Jesus, the righteous, who went to the cross and died for the unrighteous, lived a life that we should have lived and died a death we should have died. God, as we take the bread and the juice this morning, God, help us to remember this incredible thing that he has done. God, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are adopted, we are bought back. We are righteous, not because of our actions, but because of Jesus. What an amazing thing. Thank you for it. Thank you for the finished work on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Thou
want to leave you with this before we sing one more song together. In, in, in Abraham, we see one of the first priests. And in his exploration, theological exploration, we realize, and he realizes, that, that Jesus is the great high priest. But there's also a truth for us, that, that we are priests as well. And as we look and we see Abraham and, and how he performed his duties and this intimate life that he had with God, but also in intimacy and a deep care for people. And so we, as priests, should be the same way. A love for God, a deep love and intimacy with God, but also, as we saw in Micah 6 8, to, to love mercy and to do justly, to walk humbly with thy God to care for the oppressed. Uh, in in uh, Revelation, it tells us that he made us kings and priests. And in 1 Peter 2, it says we are his royal priesthood. That access to God and that ability to hear the outcry of the oppressed is available to us. And we are called to do the same. And we just don't look to Abraham and say, I want to be like Abraham. We look to Jesus, because without Jesus, we miss the point, right? But, but he has called us kings and priests, a royal priesthood, to live an intimate life with God. But as a result of that intimate life with God, an intimacy with other people, to hear the cry, the outcry of the oppressed and the hurting, and to answer it, to respond because of our deep love for God and our deep love for his people. Let's pray together. God, as we sing here together, God, help us to worship you with our song. Help us to worship you with our actions as we lead. God, we are kings and priests. Wow. We are a royal priesthood. Help us to be intimate with you. Help us to come to you. And God, help us to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more song together. He knows my thoughts, the things that no one sees. He knows my heart.